Welcome to the VentureCapital.fm podcast. Find us on Apple, Venture Capital uh, is the, the title. And we are doing really well on downloads, Peter. So thank everyone for watching. We're well on the way to 50,000 downloads. And for the first year of the podcast, most most podcasts don't get this much much traction. And most of our days are between 100 to 200 downloads plus. So thank everyone for making that happen. Yes, thank you. So it's all because of uh, your great your great voice. They just love hearing it. My, no, most of the time it's they tell soothing. me to shut up on YouTube. <laughs> and then I like to spar with them. Tell the guy on the left to shut up. <laughs> And then I'll comment on on YouTube. I'm the guy on the left. <laughs> By the way, I, I fully recognize Peter's the brain here. Peter is the brain here. He's the VC back uh, background. In case you're new, I'm the I've got the founder stories and and whatnot. And together, I think we make a great pair. So indeed. Does your wife call me your your business your what is it? Have we have we advanced to the stage where I'm your uh, your other wife? No, no, hard no. Maybe we need to talk. <laughs> talk more as we prepare but like some of the people i've worked with in the past she's probably jealous about how much time i spend with you doing these podcasts i could see that i mean i really i get i get excited every time what are we talking about tonight so let's talk about tips for first time fund managers or how would you start your first fund i feel like right now it may be just where this the, the stage of life where people are like I'm going to start a VC fund. I'm going to buy a private plane. I feel like this year in my life, that's kind <laughs> Those of Those are like the, the choices. choices. <laughs> start but, a venture fund, buy a plane. <laughs> and I, I, I think most of these guys are like posturing. Yeah. I don't know how serious they are, but it's fair. It's fairly common. And so, and, and you know, and I'm 39 now. I think you're roughly the same age. Yeah. So maybe we're at that spot. I mean, how come you haven't bought a plane yet? That is a great question. Because I bought a venture fund instead. <laughs> you bought a venture fund, yes. And as a founder of a venture fund, it's really expensive. It is a little expensive. A lot. Mostly in time. I don't think most people realize that. How? What's the general rule of a first-time fund? How much capital do most individuals have to contribute to get off the ground? 2%, 10%? Um, that's a good question. I mean, look, most funds, general partners in the funds are are at least two percent like one to two percent of the total assets under all of them combined or individual at least yeah um it depends like like if you've made a ton of money then your lps are going to expect you to have a meaningful amount of your net worth tied up in the fund to ensure that there is good alignment right between their interests and yours if you haven't made a ton of money then you know they still whatever that number is it still needs to be meaningful to demonstrate you have skin in the game mm-hmm. when i was looking at so vspring it's a fund that no longer exists yeah it's been acquired its assets twice now maybe once or twice oh. uh but the 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 founder the partners there my understanding was they had to at least put enough capital to cover their salary for the next two or three years yeah so they would still get a salary but they put in at least let's say they're making 200K, they're expected to put in almost like 600K, mm-hmm. which was would be paid back to them as a salary to, to end the game. It could be. I mean, to set up a fund, you're probably, your your legal docs are probably your biggest expense out of the gate. That's, you know, anywhere between 50 and $200,000. So the cleaner it is, the less negotiation you have to do, the more template-driven it could be, you're closer to 50K. The more unique, specialized negotiations, side letters, you know, all of that stuff, the closer you are to that 200 number. 
Um, so, you know, that's, that's a big chunk of change. Then you add on top of that, like, yeah, you're not taking a salary while you're fundraising. Um, and you can't really do it on the side while you're doing another job. You really need to be kind of all in. Um, it's also all those things make it challenging, right? It's also starting a fund is also, it's almost like two jobs because you're the fund manager. Um, and then you have to be looking for like investments and things at the same time. You're like a business owner and you're, you're a fund manager. Yeah, that's one of the things that I remind um, people all the time about, which is like when you talk to VCs, it's really easy to be like, oh, VCs are arrogant and like they don't really appreciate and can't really empathize with like what I'm going through as a founder. But like, you know, a lot of VCs, especially small ones, single GP or where it's just a couple GPs, like they're entrepreneurs too. They're just running a totally different business than you are. And they, they face similar issues around like, I got to go fundraise. I got to come up with a differentiated strategy. I've got to fight for deal flow. I've, you know, instead of customers, I've got to, um, uh, I've got to hire people and manage people and set up payroll and like all these other things, right? Except for they're going to do it on a model that is like not very scalable, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, is kind of this like cottage industry kind of thing where it's like, yeah, you're a team of like 10 people and you got to manage, you know, it doesn't matter how much money you're managing. Like you still have to manage all these things, right? Mm -hmm, So payroll and, you know, people and office space and travel and so forth. So don't get me wrong. Like I love being a VC and doing what I do, but like, it's not, not always as, as sexy and glamorous uh, under the hood. And I think, and as a startup, you have, fairly large binary events yeah i mean like like look at code base code base you know you get a client you lose a client a client might increase in size down to, you know decrease yeah but it's very rare that like one thing that would happen that could put me under yeah where i think in the in the vc space you've got multiple critical events you know can you even raise a, a fund yeah and then maybe we talk about as we're talking about operational challenges Derek hall a good friend um, he's been a VC both in San Francisco and in Brazil. And he, you know, he said something when he was here in Utah this last, last month that I thought was interesting is as hard as it is to raise a fund, he says it's much harder deploying capital in the right companies because everyone wants to be in those companies Yeah, and the valuations are crazy high and founders have crazy rights as we just talked about in our last episode with FTX and FTT yeah. where there's, you know, no very little oversight for even, even funds like Sequoia. And it's like, how do you compete as a VC when someone like Sequoia can drop 200 million in, into a, a startup yep. and you know, you're lucky as a first time VC to drop a one to $2 million check. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's challenging. Right. And, and what I tell my students all the time is, uh, in, in order, I, I feel like in order to be a world-class VC, you have to be world-class at at least two of three things. I think we've talked about this before. Um, you have to be able to fundraise, you have to be able to source deals, and you have to be able to pick the right deals. Um, because sometimes the deals that are the most sexy and everyone's throwing money at are horrible deals, right? You don't want to be in them, but sometimes they are the deal you really want to be in, right? And being able to know the difference, that's important. How do you do, how But do being you able to get that? access to that really hot deal to begin with, that's important. And then being able to convince investors to come in. And what I've seen over the years working with, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of VCs is like the ones that are like at the top of their game are world-class at two of those three things, right? If you can be world-class at two of those three things, you can be a good investor. You don't have to be good at all three, but being world-class at just one of them is hard. 
mm-hmm. right? Let alone two. And so to Derek's point, right? He's like, yeah, fundraising's hard. I would argue uh, Derek's probably pretty good on the fundraising side, but mm-hmm. to his point, like, yeah, but then you got to get access to the good deals mm-hmm. and that's hard. And now you see VCs, not only they're just the writing a check, they're trying to find a creative angle for you to say, yes, you're different. Let me come in. So yeah. I think University Growth Fund has the student angle. Yep. You know, Derek's angle when he was in San Francisco was we can help you open Latin America as yep. part of the reason for letting us in. Yep. Yeah. I think honestly, like as a VC, especially if you're first time, like you got to figure out like what's your edge, just like any entrepreneur that's starting a business, like you have to find your edge. What makes you special? What makes you competitive? And, uh, you know, I think it used to be that your edge was, well, we have money, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's really hard to raise money for venture capital. We have the money. That's our edge, right? Um, I don't think that plays anymore because capital is so fungible and so available today um, that it's it's not that hard to raise money. Mm-hmm. Um, at, I, least, at least it hasn't been. This year, maybe a little bit different. Next year, maybe even worse. I mean, we'll see. But, like... Historically, and so... But like Andreessen Horowitz has a whole team of sales reps that help their startups. Yeah, yeah. And so you got to find, like, that's their angle, right? They're like, we're going to hire like 10,000 people <laughs> and throw them at, at your startups to help. Like, But like, you can win against Andreessen, right? It is possible. Mm-hmm. Andreessen, Andreessen wasn't even in FTX. Yeah, but we're just talking right? about operational challenges right now. So... Yeah, I mean, look, I think... And that's like finding your unique edge. It's, yeah, it's finding your unique edge. Yeah, you could go early and have conviction when no one else has conviction. You can find some sort of edge like like us or Derek, like you just mentioned. Um, or maybe you just go and you work for one of the top tier brands and those brands end up being an edge, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe you're really... You have deep sector expertise that gives you insight into who's going to be the winner before mm-hmm. anybody else knows it and you can you can play mm-hmm. with high conviction so yeah i don't know but i think that the day of like a bunch of white dudes in a you know fund in the middle of the u.s i think those days are like coming to an end i think it's gonna be really hard for them to generate meaningful alpha um going forward you explain what alpha is for those who don't know so without going into like all the economic you know jargon you of, did drop like, a pretty big vc term there <laughs> It's not really a VC term. It's more like maybe a high finance term. But anyways, the idea of alpha is uh, if you look at the like, you know, Black-Scholes model, blah, blah, blah. There's this idea of like there there's like general returns that everybody gets. And then there's like outsized returns. And the difference between like the general t- returns that everybody gets and the outsized return, that difference is alpha. So it's this idea of like I can generate returns that are above the average above the mean uh, for this asset class and if you're not generating alpha you're not generating above the mean it's going to be really really hard to fundraise Mm -hmm. okay what other operational challenges that does someone should you expect or anticipate if you were planning to to launch a fund yeah i mean i think just operationally you should be aware that you're going to have to have a way to manage all of your portfolio companies and keep track of how they're doing and what's going on and how to be helpful to them you're going to have to track all the accounting you're going to have to report to your lps you're probably going to have to have an audit uh from from a firm right um you're going to have people and you're gonna have to manage those people i mean it's just it's all of the same things that that companies have to deal with um you know, you're managing all of that plus trying to deploy capital. Okay. Let's talk about fund structure now. Okay. Of 
funds of the three friends I know who are actively launching a new fund. Yep. Two of them, which kind of blows my mind, have chosen to go the fund of fund routes. Okay. Why do you think that is? And first of all, because it's easy. Is that what, why? I mean, you, you raise capital and then you're fighting to put money into Sequoia. For those that you don't know, instead of putting money in, you know, a certain startup, I'm trying to get money, a check into Sequoia. Yeah. Which I'm sure has a, a waiting list that's a hundred years long. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I don't even think Sequoia has a waiting list. I think they just say no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So if you're a fund of funds and you're trying to get into Sequoia, yeah, that's probably in your whole thesis is like, we only exist if we can get into Sequoia. That's probably hard. Um, mm-hmm. But if you're a fund of funds and you're like, hey, look, like I'm just going to go back a bunch of VCs. And, and let me. That's if, relatively easy, right? Maybe. Well, I mean, you're basically just a fundraiser for those VCs. Yeah. But I think the other thing they're trying to do is they're trying to do a fund of funds, I think, on somewhat of a more of a localized level. Okay. And so it's like being a fund of funds for Utah VCs. Okay. Which I don't know. It's a new thought, but it's a new thought, at least in the Utah area, which I feel like is more prevalent than I would anticipate it being. Yeah. So what fund structure would you go after if you were to launch a fund today? Um, you could create a revenue-based, fi- you know, revenue-based financing fund. You could do another VC fund. You no, I'd probably, do, I'd probably do something pretty similar to what I do today, which is we do, we're very opportunistic. We do early growth, late, uh, with an emphasis on early and growth. Okay. Kind of series A to series C kind of focus. Okay. Uh, but that's mostly just because that's what I've kind of built my career around and that's what I enjoy doing. Okay. Um, I'll tell you what, like if I had all the money in the world, I'd also set up a seed fund where I just write checks to absolutely insane, crazy ideas just for the fun of it. And, um, but I wouldn't raise money for that. <laughs> I would just blow my own money. The way I, the way I scratch that itch today is I back stuff on Kickstarter. Okay. I think I've backed. I think today marks 140 projects on Kickstarter. I know I get a lot of those alerts. Peter just drops some coin. Really? That's funny. I think it's you. Maybe it's someone else. But anyways, what would be your thesis or your um, your portfolio strategy? Just going for early or high growth? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of because I think you're fairly unique strategies in that, that a lot pursue. A lot of VCs tend to have like a tighter focus, like album local VC. Yeah. I feel like they're looking for a SaaS model that's ready for a sales team to be thrown on it. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I'd, I have, don't to, know I'd have to think strategy. about more like what, what that exact strategy is. I'll tell you our strategy today is twofold. One is find the like, um, underloved gems of companies that are growing really fast and doing it profitably. And the other is leverage who we are to get into some of the, the hottest, most competitive deals uh, that have tons of funding and backing. And then you got into Spotify, into Lyft. So it's working well. Yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> but you've already, you're already on your second fund or third fund? Second fund. Second fund. Well, yeah, the third fund that I've run. Okay, third fund. Yeah. How would you identify the right LPs for your fund? Uh, whoever will give you money. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, like there's how there's... many dentists would I have to pitch then to raise a twenty million dollar fund? <laughs> uh, your LPs should align well with your investment strategy. That's my belief. Okay. So I was talking to I'm an LP in one of these angel list funds, and we were talking, and I was like, you need to go after because part of their thing is like we want to write the check that convinces you to leave your job. Okay. 
And I was like, your LP base needs to be those people. Okay. The people that are still have that job that are making like somewhere between like two hundred and five hundred thousand dollars a year, like big high salary, C suite, VP level, like and about you know, highly compensated people that are accredited investors, so they can invest in this sort of thing. This and they are the kinds of people that could spin out and launch um a company that you would want to back like those should be your lps is this convoy but like they shouldn't be my lps for my fund okay right is this convoy <laughs> it may or may not be convoy okay um but i mean i had that for idea. us as a venture fund like our lps are large and inst- financial institutions and so like mm-hmm. Part of our investment strategy is meeting like requirements and criteria that they have and that are important to them, right? Mm-hmm. I think it, when I was with the Utah Angels, I thought about launching what I called in my mind the Utah Executive Fund. Yeah, where you have a lot of these individuals who are six and seven figure earners um, who want to play like the VC card. Yeah, and I think even more importantly, have the knowledge to leverage. Yeah. So, for example, Chris Knudsen, good friend, he was the founding CMO of Purple, who yep. launched them from nothing to over 100 million in revenue. Yep. And having a fund like that, where you could ping him and say, "Hey, part of the investment is the knowledge base; the other part is the cash." Yep. You can get, you know, sit down with someone like Chris. I think that'd be highly valuable. Yeah. I never ended up doing that, but when I was thinking about launching a fund, that was one of my ideas. Yeah. And it's not a unique idea. Like a lot of a lot of funds uh, have similar strategies. I think other ones that are interesting are, you know, here in Utah, there's a fund called RET Ventures. Um, it's real estate technology ventures, and all of their LPs or most of their LPs are, you know, property owners. And they own, you know, th- hundreds of thousands, but not millions of doors, right, of rental properties and other things. And that gives them a huge edge, right? Because when you're trying to win that deal. Right. And you go to them and you say, hey, my LPs could be your first, you know, $10 million of revenue. Mm-hmm. Right. People set up and they're like, maybe I'll take your money over Sequoia who can't offer that same advantage. Okay. Right? Um, so, again, like I think like smart fund managers will find like ways to, to drive really good alignment between their LPs and their their investment strategy. Mm-hmm. That would be like my biggest suggestion. Uh huh. If you're trying to find a a fund, would you approach family offices? Yeah, for sure. What, what about fund of funds? Sure. You're just gonna say yes? Would yeah, you, I mean, look, <laughs> you approach everybody, right? It's like, w- would I approach? Would the, you at Codebase the Denver approach. Coalition of Dentists? <laughs> would you go there? Uh, maybe, maybe not. Okay. Would you... There does become a point where it's like you don't want to have like a zillion LPs. What about it's like writing small checks and because they're like hurting cats. And then the other thing that's really tough, and this is a trap that a lot of fund managers, especially like first time fund managers, fall into. And and there's there's no real easy way around this. Is they'll raise so so the typical path is right. Somebody makes enough money that, or they have some angle that allows them to build a track record. That is like the first thing you need is a track record, right? Mm-hmm. So they do a bunch of angel deals. They generate the, these great returns. They bundle up those returns. And then they go to all their friends and family. And they're like, look at how much money I made on my angel investments. You should invest in my fund. And I'll keep making investments like I did on the angel side and generate great returns. And and so they get a bunch of their friends and families and fools all together. And they put up money. And they raise, you know, like sub 10 million or whatever it is. And then 
they deploy all the money and then they go back to their friends and family like hey it's ready for fun too you know it's been three years and their their friends and family are like yeah we gave you all our money (laughs) you know like give it back and we'll give you some more and they're like that's not how this works like this money's locked up probably for another 10 years um and so then they're they're in a tough spot and so fun too can be really challenging Mm -hmm. um i've heard that's where a lot of fun managers die is because fun too because they can't make that they can't cross that chasm the chasm so yeah. you, you deploy most of your cash for the first three years but then after year three it, you get you you're waiting another five to eight years so you know years eight to ten yeah and so by that by that point they've gotten another job they're committed yeah. to other things yeah they're not so, known as a fund manager so anymore. this is why i think there are a lot there's a lot of speculation that funds there, there'll be a lot of attrition of venture funds because when when times are good, you're able to show like strong write-ups across your portfolio, even though it's a paper gains, and you're able to raise the next fund on those paper gains. So you're like, hey, look, here's my angel investments. Here's my paper gains on my, my fund one investments. Mr. Institution, please fund fund two, right? Mm-hmm. But when times are not good, what happens is all these institutions start pulling back, right? They're conserving capital. Uh, it also, what happens is like, they have, you know, let's say you're a $10 billion asset manager, endowment, whatever. Um, most of your money is going to go into public stock and bonds. And in the current environment where you've just taken a 30 plus percent haircut on mm-hmm. all of your equities, all of a sudden, like the allocation that you had, maybe you had a 10% of your total assets was allocated for alternative investments like venture. Well, if you went from a $10 billion corpus down to a $7 billion corpus, all of a sudden you had a 30% drop in mm-hmm. the size of your available cash for alternative investments. And you're not going to put those most likely into risky first-time funds. You're going to put them into stable, you know, um, well-known funds that you've been backing this whole time and you want to keep supporting because you want to keep being in their next fund and their next fund and the next fund. And so it just makes it really hard. And so that's that's like some of the concern is that these fund managers that are on fund one, they've got like this portfolio, they've got mostly individuals that are backing them. Those individuals, they're also seeing their own like liquidity crises. They're not gonna be able to re-up in fund two. Institutionals, they're not gonna have the cash to invest in fund two. And then you're just kind of a zombie fund managing out fund one and you're in a tough spot. So if you are able in a fund one to get institutionals to invest, like that is like holy grail type stuff. For the Harvard alums. Harvard it, alums can hard. pull that. That's hard. I think there's only one fund. I can't remember the name. They pulled in institutions, but they also focused on a niche of underserved minorities. And I don't know if they didn't have, if they didn't have that both combos, if that would have happened. Yeah. I mean, look, we have our fund one was mostly institutional investors. But your fund one was really your fund two in my mind. Yeah, well, our fund, the first fund I ever managed was mostly institutionals too. Okay. So it is possible. And, you know, um, a good example of that is a Fearless Fund, to your earlier point. They're based out of Atlanta. Fantastic team. They focus on funding black women entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, their tagline is, you know, black women entrepreneurs are the most founded, less fun- least funded. So they're on a, like a percentage basis. Black women entrepreneurs start more businesses mm-hmm. uh, on a comparative basis than any other population, and yet they receive the least amount of funding. Um, but because of their like mission um, and because of who they are as like great great investors, like they were able to attract large institutions like Ally Bank, like Fifth Third, like Costco, like a bunch of others. Mm-hmm. So it is it is possible. 
Um, but to your point, it's it's pretty hard. Okay. My last question is for a first time fund manager, is there any special terms you have to throw in there? Uh, it depends. So oftentimes what happens, so one, you have to understand like a fund structure. So there are basically three entities. You have a management company. That's the brand, right? So when you think Sequoia, there's a management company called Sequoia essentially. And I actually don't know if that's the technical legal term for the the management company, but there's this management company that holds the brand. And then you've got a general partner and you have a limited partner and the limited partner is the actual fund. So it's a partnership with a bunch of limited partners. They all kick in money, and then that money gets allocated to deals, and the stock certificates are held at the limited partnership. And then you have a general partner, and that general partner controls the flow of funds effectively uh, of the limited partnership. They're limited, right? So they, you know, they're limited in what they can do, and that's why you have a general partner to control it. Um, anyway, so all of that is backdrop. Usually what happens when you go out fundraise is you get limited partners into your fund. Right, you're, ra- you're fundraising from limited partners. One of the things that's happened recently, somewhat recently, you know, maybe over the last like five to 10 years, is that more and more funds are fundraising for the management company and or for the general partner. And uh, they're effectively selling a piece of their management company or a piece of their general partnership to give them the startup capital they need in order to launch this fund, right? To cover legal expenses, travel, salaries, like all of those things. Um, and so that could be a potential like term, special privilege term, whatever, where it's like, Hey, uh, I would like a million dollars in, you know, but maybe you invest, you buy, you know, 10%, 20%, 30% of the general partnership or of the management company. So then you'd get percentage of for, for a million bucks. And then forever. I, yeah. And then, yeah, that's right. So you would get a cut. So you have management fees. Management fees are used to cover mm-hmm. uh, salary and overhead and all that sort of stuff. So management fees primarily flow to the management company. So if you own a piece in the management company, you are getting a piece of those management fee flow uh, from every fund you know, today and into the future. Uh, the management company also controls when a fund raises another fund. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you own a piece of the general partner, then you're getting usually a piece of the carry um, and for that one fund, as opposed to that fund and all subsequent funds. It's usually just for that one fund. So yeah, there's a lot of different things. Um, outside of that, you know, I've seen I've seen cases where um, first time fund managers have given uh, lower carry or taken lower carry. So instead of the standard two twenty percent, they take ten percent or 15% Mm -hmm. or they've given their anchor investor, you know, like, Hey, we'll, we'll give you a better deal on terms like lower management fee, lower carry, but everybody else pays full freight. Um, I've seen, you know, same thing drops in management fee or different structures around management fee, uh, in terms of like, maybe you get paid only on capital that's been deployed, right? Those types of things to incentivize you to get money out the door and not just sit on your, your haunches. Um, but I think generally, I would say when you get cute on terms, you kind of set yourself up to lose a little bit. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because it's like this signaling, this signal, this negative signal um, that you're it, it's like you should never invest in a venture fund because you're getting a deal on terms. 
Okay. Uh, you're right. Like it's like you should invest in a venture fund because they're good investors. And the corollary to that is like Bain charges at least I don't know if they still do, but I know at some at one point they weren't charging two and twenty, two percent management fee and twenty percent carry. They were charging three percent management fee and thirty percent carry because they were like so confident in their ability to generate better returns than their peers that were charging twenty percent that even at charging at thirty percent, investors would be better off investing in Bain, right? That's like the opposite. That's like mm-hmm. that's a signal that's one, like really ambitious. And um you know, it's interesting. I was listening to another podcast and they were talking about the history of benchmark and, and kind of pointed out like, that's what benchmark did for fund one is they came out and they were like, we're going to charge higher fees than the industry average. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and some of the LPs like Stanford were like pissed about it and like tried to fight them on it. Um, but it was like this incredibly strong signal too of like, you know what, we're going to knock this thing out of the park and mm-hmm. we're going to charge fee for it. Cause we know what we're worth, blah, blah, blah. So I don't know that I recommend that for everybody, but it is kind of an interesting thing to be thinking about. Like I, I would just figure out like what's market, go with market, right? Market terms um, is probably your best bet. Okay. Well, that works. Well, thanks so much. I had one more question. I remember what it was. So it must not be that good. So let's, uh, there we go. Well, thanks for the episode, Peter. Join us for the next one, venturecapital.fm and make sure you go to us because you can find where we are on all the on all the socials thanks for joining all right thanks guys